Well, uh, as many of you may know, I grew up doing some hiking now and then in New Mexico, and I enjoyed it until I would hit an unexpected difficulty on the path I was following. Now, this is a picture of the National Park on the edge of the town where I grew up, Gallup. If you've ever driven through on I-40, you might recognize this. You pass it on the east side. Heather and I lived across the highway from this park uh, just before we moved here. Now, I have a lot of memories of going up the trails to reach this particular rock, Pyramid Rock. But one in particular stands out in my mind. My brother and I, at that time, he was around 19, I was around 12. My brother and I decided to hike this, and we were planning on a, one of the summer mission teams that had come out from Michigan to serve in the churches. Uh, we were planning on them joining us on our way up this hike. Now, we got there ahead of them and decided to hike up ourselves and meet them at the top. Now, my brother has always been a risk taker. Uh, time and age have given him, him a lot more wisdom. But when he was around 18 or 19, he often decided that he didn't need water on some of these hikes. After all, we were desert dwellers. We were used to the heat. So we headed up without it. And the sun beat down. And we got up to the top and we enjoyed the view for a while. And shortly, the mission team joined us. Now we hung out up at the top and my brother and I, after a little while, knew that we had to get back down since we had been in the sun for a bit. I think we took a little bit of water from the mission team, but didn't take any down with us. And we told the mission team how they could find the trail again and get back down. So we started to get a little thirsty as my brother and I walked the trails through this. So we tried chewing on some grass and picking apart cactuses to just get a little bit of moisture in our mouths because we were getting a bit dehydrated. But there was another problem. We had lost the mission team. They apparently had not found the trail. For that matter, I don't think we had found the trail either, but we had at least known the direction. Eventually, we made it back to our car got some drinks, and waited another hour or two for our poor Michigan friends to come straggling out of the desert. Everybody was alive. We all made it. I think they, they had an easier time the next year when they came out. Now, this wasn't the only time I faced challenges on this particular trail. You'd think I would learn my lesson the first time. I actually took Heather for our first official date as a couple up to Pyramid Rock. And of course, on our way back down in the blazing sun, we lost the path and found ourselves trying to get up and down various ledges and canyons. As you can see, the trail just goes up and down through those and you have to find the exact spot to get up and down. And we couldn't find the trail markers while the sun beat down. Not the brightest date idea I've ever had. But by God's grace, Heather decided to stick with me anyway. Now, sometimes the path we follow brings unexpected challenges. Challenges that we do not want. 
And the same can be said of the path of the Christian life. As we come to Peter's first letter, we see him writing to Christians that find themselves facing what might have been unexpected challenges that they didn't realize they were getting into when they first set out on the path of faith. They had come to Christ and they had accepted the gift of hope and salvation in his name. And they had found new spiritual freedom and suffering and cruelty and abusive language from unbelievers in their communities, in their jobs, and even in their own families. While we live in a country that protects our freedom to believe what we want, we too, if we are truly living out our faith publicly, if we are living out our faith publicly, we will often find ourselves facing unexpected challenges and hostility on the path of faith. If we are outspoken about our faith to unbelieving relatives, to unbelieving co-workers or fellow classmates, we will come across hostility to the gospel we believe. So this raises a question. If Christ has set us free, if he has overcome this world, why do we continually have to submit to cruel people? Why do we have to put up with it? Why do we have to suffer unfairly for doing the right things? Why does our message of hope bring hostility from this world? You know, as I think about this message, facing unfair suffering and hostility, cruelty from unbelievers, it hits home personally. I'm sure this might for some of you as well, who have family members who have rejected you because of your faith. I have relatives here in California that have not spoken to me for 14 years because of my faith. Today we are going to discuss our response to unfair suffering, to cruel treatment from unbelievers in this world. And we will be doing so by continuing in our series on 1 Peter. And we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. If you have your Bible, turn it to chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, someone can provide you with one. Now recently in our exile series, going through the book of Peter, we have been discussing the various arenas of our life which we are to live out the gospel. And we first talked about how the gospel should be lived out in our personal, individual lives. And then we talked about our civic lives as we submit to our governing authorities. And lastly, in our vocational life, our jobs, as we endure unfair treatment there. Now next week, we will be talking about how the gospel changes our marriages. When we come to chapter 2, verses 18 through chapter 3, verses 7, we find something that is often called a household code. It's a set of instructions given to different peoples living in a home. This is how your home operates, a household code. And it includes often servants, which we talked about last week. Some of them include kids. And then they also address husbands and wives, which we will come to later. 
But Peter does something a little bit different when, with his household code. When he gets to servants, which we covered last week, he pauses because he wants to draw out something for us to learn. And we will see why in just a moment. Now let us refresh our memories on last week by revisiting the verses written to servants. Verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now a question should come up here. A natural question that I put out to to us a few minutes ago. A few questions. Shouldn't the gospel with its radical, life-changing implications, do, with, do away with our suffering through persecution? After all, don't all Christians find freedom in Christ? Even these servants that Peter is writing to? Isn't Christ the victorious Lord over evil and death? We know these things are true. They are true. Yet here, Peter is calling Christians to submit to unfair treatment, to submit to cruel masters. So the natural question is, why? Why submit to unfair suffering? Now remember, in our context, we just aren't talking about any suffering. Peter isn't addressing suffering caused because we've done something wrong. He's not talking about punishment for when we've done evil. He isn't talking about death or disease or natural disaster. All those things, all those kinds of suffering, Scripture addresses, but in other places. For our verses here today, Peter is specifically talking about suffering undeserved cruelty for doing good. When people treat us like we are evil, when we are actually doing good. When people hate us for our faith. Why are we to submit to this kind of treatment in this world? Peter takes a moment to point us to Christ. To point us to his example as a suffering servant. An example by which all Christians must look to and follow. Now let's read verse 21. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ offered also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, Peter wants Christians to realize something. While he has been talking to household servants, all believers need to recognize that they are servants as well, even if that isn't their daytime job. And he answers our questions here are questions about why we have to keep submitting even if we are free. Why we suffer if Christ is victorious. And he does so by pointing us to the example of the ultimate suffering servant, Jesus. 
He tells us that this is what we are called to. It is the path intended for us by God when he chose us to be his own. Bible scholar Karen Jobes summarizes what Peter is saying this way. Peter's call, Peter's call is to suffer unjustly. To suffer even though one has done nothing to provoke or deserve it. Simply because one is a Christian. To suffer even though one has done nothing to provoke or deserve it. Simply because one is a Christian. Disciples are called to follow Christ's example in patient suffering. Disciples are called to follow Christ's example in patient suffering. Now, this is not an easy path, but the path of a true disciple who follows Jesus Christ. Suffering for him because he suffered for us. Peter says that Christ suffered to set an example for us. Now, the Greek word we translate here, example, has a bit of a stronger sense in the original language. It actually, in those days, in the New Testament times, referred to um, letter patterns that young children would copy over so that they could learn their own letters. So if you think back to when you were in first or second grade learning how to write cursive or print, those little worksheets you were given where you would have to, you know, copy over exactly every letter over and over again until you got it down and you weren't writing backwards E's anymore. That's what we're talking about. That's what this word, the thrust of this word means. And so the point is clear here. Just like a child traces over letters... So our lives as Christians must trace over the life of Christ exactly. It must look like his exactly. Becoming suffering servants just as he was. Following in his footsteps. Now this isn't an optional path for disciples. But one that was left for all believers. So what does this look like? What does this path look like? If Christ is our example, how to face unfair treatment and cruelty, how do we see that modeled in his life? Verse 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now Peter does something interesting here in verses 22 through 24. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he looked to Isaiah's prophecy about the suffering servant. And he used that prophecy to help him understand why Christ had to suffer. Now remember, this is Peter we're talking about. And Peter had not always viewed the suffering of Christ in a good way. If you think back to the Gospels when Peter was younger and following Christ, he did not always react in a good way. He was not always okay with Jesus saying that he had to suffer. He always wanted to try to stop Jesus from going through with it. That younger version of Peter recognized correctly that Jesus deserved much more. But he failed to realize that Christ had chosen to take on a status that he didn't deserve. Christ had chosen to take on a status he didn't deserve. A servant, the status of a servant who suffered unfairly. 
And now we find Peter. An older Peter whose heart has been changed by the Spirit. A Peter who now recognizes that Jesus had to accept a lower station in life and suffer so that we might be redeemed. So that we might be redeemed. But I'd say even more than that. Peter now recognizes this is the model for our lives as well. You think back to when Christ was arrested. What did Peter do when faced with the possibility of suffering like his Lord? He denied him. If you're familiar with the tradition of what happened to Peter after the New Testament, he got it. He understood this in the long run, that he was called to suffer like his Lord did. And Peter was crucified just as Christ. Now drawing on Isaiah 53, Peter first points us points out that Christ did not commit sin. If you're taking notes, that's point A on the backside of your sheets. Christ did not commit sin. Back in verse 12, Peter had called us to keep our conduct honorable amongst unbelievers so that when they saw us acting honorably, they would glorify God. And this is what Christ did. He remained honorable and he didn't commit sin even when he was suffering unfairly. Even when he was suffering unfairly. Now Peter goes on to quote Isaiah 53 in the next verse saying, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now this is point B, if you're taking notes of what Christ's example looks like for us. He did not retaliate. He did not retaliate. Reviling here refers to abusive speech. And this was most likely the most common form of persecution that Peter's audience faced. Abusive language. They were looked down on by the people in their culture and they were despised for their faith. Responding in kind to hateful people is always tempting, isn't it? When people are being nasty to you, it's tempting to lash back at them. So Peter reminds us, Christ could have retaliated. He could have, but he did not. He did not even threaten. When Roman guards were hurling insults at him, he responded with silence. He entrusted himself to the Father, leaving judgment to him. One commentator noted that this was not the silence of resignation. Jesus wasn't giving up by being silent. It was a silence of patient confidence. It was patient confidence in the midst of all these insults. If we are to follow Christ's steps, when we face this kind of cruelty, this kind of unfair suffering, we must keep ourselves from sinning in response, not returning sin for sin. And we must continue to trust God in the situation. Now, Peter goes on in verse 24 to show us that God was indeed in control through Christ's suffering, just as he is with ours. 
through his suffering, God's plan for our salvation came to be completed. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So this here is point C. He bore our sins. Now this is part of his Christ's example for us that we can't imitate. But there are still lessons to learn here that we can unpack. He bore our sins. Christ's suffering was not in vain. It was for us. It was to bring us back to God once again. When we had turned our backs on God, rejecting him and disobeying him, unable to return to him on our own and deserving a just punishment for our disobedience, Christ bore our penalty for us. He bore our penalty for us. I hope you believe that today. That is such amazing grace. His suffering was not in vain. It accomplished our redemption. This is point D. By his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. Christ's suffering did not mean that his father had abandoned him. The father was accomplishing his plan. In the same way, our suffering does not mean that God has abandoned us. If we suffer, it does not mean that God has abandoned us. His plan is mysterious. Christ suffered for things that he did not do. And we might too. We might suffer when we don't deserve it. We may bear unfair criticism and cruelty in this life for our faith. We might have loved ones and relatives, co-workers, decide that they don't want to have much to do with us because we believe things that are radical to them. But that does not mean that God has left us. He has a plan. Peter goes on in verse 25 to say, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, I've had a little bit of experience with sheep growing up around the Navajo Reservation. I once spent a week doing sheep shearing with a Navajo family. And uh, if we could get that next slide up. I had to dig around on the internet for this, go back to the MySpace days. This is a picture of me on a sheep trying (laughs) trying to get it to go the direction I wanted it to. I had hoped it had disappeared off the internet, but it was still there. So I could at least use it today. (laughs) Now we, I I had spent a week helping a Navajo family that I know do some shearing. They had about a hundred in their flock and we sheared the sheep the old fashioned way with the big shears that you could cut your finger off with if you're not careful or accidentally clip the sheep if you're not careful. You might have done that. Um, (laughs) And I have to say, sheep smell. Now, I did raise goats for a little while, believe it or not. I won a few goats in a sack race of all things. (laughs) Then someone gave me some more when they found out I had some. So, you know, I was in high school. I needed some money. So I figured, hey, you know, there's a lot of goat herders around here. I'll breed some, sell them, make some money. That was until my neighbor's Rottweiler and German Shepherd decided to dispatch them. Now, apparently, you can train goats to come when you call them. But I never figured that out. 
So when they would knock their gate open, which happened a few times, I would be running around in the woods like a fool trying to catch a bunch of goats with a rope. Yeah, I don't miss them. I can tell you that. But sheep learn to recognize the call of their master, the one who oversees them. I was watching a video the other day. I wish I would have pulled it up. But I was watching as all these people in an audience would go up and try to call these sheep, call these sheep. And, of course, one, one sheep would look, go back to eating. And eventually, when the shepherd stepped up and started to call, it took a few minutes of him calling out, calling out, calling out, but they would all run to his voice. The sheep I sheared didn't know or like me. <laughs> Not at all. I got kicked a couple times. They got some powerful hind legs. So they would just run away, and that's why in that previous picture, we don't have to go back to it, but that previous picture, I was trying to ride one back because they didn't trust me. They would bash their heads in the gates trying to get away, bloody themselves up. But from what I've been told by shepherds, if you have a flock of sheep out in a field, laying down near a fire at night, as the coyotes start to circle and howl, you can watch as the sheep look startle, look out into the darkness to the voices of these predators, and then they shift their eyes to find the face of their shepherd. They look to their shepherd and they settle down again and return to sleep. Sheep know to trust the path that their shepherd takes them on, even when they hear the cruel voices of predators around them. They know the shepherd's intent. On this path of discipleship, the Christian life, this path we have been called to, we will face unfair suffering, and we will face the cruel howls of an unbelieving world. Follow the shepherd. Follow the shepherd. It's the safest place to be when unfair suffering comes. God has a plan. And his plan for us looks a lot like the mysterious plan that he had for Christ. Christ suffered much in this life, and we will too. But God raised his body from the dead and glorified him. And we will too. You see, we often slipped into thinking that our hope in the midst of suffering is to escape from this world, to go be a floating soul up on a cloud strumming a harp as if that is what heaven is. But it is not. You know, there is a verse in the New Testament that says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that is true. We do know that our loved ones who have gone on are happy and they are with him. But that's not the end of the story. That is not our complete hope. The key word in that verse is that they are absent, absent from the body. God has a much bigger plan than just that, a hope-filled plan in which Christ will come back to this cruel world. He will come back to this world, and he will set things right. He will make everything right again. And he will raise up our physical bodies from the dead, and then we will reign with him following the same pattern of Jesus, suffering, being raised back to life and reigning just as he has. 
The path of a disciple is a difficult one. Disciples are called to follow Christ's example of patient suffering, even through unfair suffering, because it is a path, it is the same path that our shepherd walked. And we could look to him in full confidence of where that path leads to all things being made new again, to the elimination of evil from this world by the one who judges justly. Live your faith publicly. Don't be afraid to. Follow Christ's example. Respond to unfairness like he did with goodness. When people reject you, when your family members don't want to talk to you anymore, when your classmates treat you cruelly, when your fellow employees treat you harshly, respond with goodness. Trust the one who judges justly, the shepherd and overseers, overseer of our souls.